Hey, welcome to episode 46 of Tangible Takeaways. I'm Jackson, and today I'm going to talk about how we are really okay with fringe sin in our life, but God is not. And my name's Todd, and we're going to talk today. I'm going to share a little bit the idea that what God calls us to is full obedience, not partial obedience. All that and more on this episode of Tangible Takeaways. Hey, welcome to episode 46 of Tangible Takeaways here with Pastor Todd. Thank you so much for taking the time. I'm so glad to get to be here. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, it's um, you probably didn't even want to walk into the studio today knowing the direction that Tangible Takeaways is going. <laughs> this, is, uh, this was an interesting weekend that we're coming off of. Hmm. I don't even think if people were, you know, if, you, if people have been tracking with our Esther series, I doubt they even thought we would get to this topic that yeah. we're going to talk about today. Um, we're having to deal with one of maybe the diciest questions in all of the Old Testament. And what's beautiful is, um, is God is a big God. He's not afraid of our questions. Um, he's not, he's got nothing to hide either. Um, everything that God does uh, is good and right and true, uh, and therefore is extremely defensible as well. Um, and so he's got nothing to hide in our questions, but we come to this real dicey question in the Old Testament, probably one of the hardest for us to make sense of, of God uses his people uh, to wipe out other people. And um, that's, a, that's a tough one for us to wrestle with because obviously um, at this day and age, we have seen some horrors of genocide in our history. And um, we struggle with that reality of, man, why would God instruct his people in that way? Um, so let's start, if people kind of forgot from the message, um, we're not just talking about this for kicks and giggles or for fun. Um, how did we get to this from Esther chapter 3? You might look at that and be like, there's no connection to this topic. Yeah. How did we get there? Yeah, we kind of stumbled into this idea that... Um, we're introduced to really the the bad guy of the story. We kind of thought it might have been Xerxes. Yeah, he's uh, he's got a lot of problems and a lot of thoughtless evil uh, that we looked at this weekend as well. But the true instigator is Haman that we're introduced to, and we see this little line in there that Haman's an Agagite, and um, we're like, well, okay, whatever. But as we keep looking on, we were introduced to Mordecai last week, a Benjamite. And all of a sudden we start doing some commentary work and some study and realize maybe it wasn't the motivation of Mordecai to not bow down to this newly elevated noble. Um, it might not have been, I'm Jewish, I'm not gonna bow to any human being. And this very courageous stand, I think some people interpret this passage that way. That's but what it, we wanna make it, right? Yeah. It'd be so much better if that's what it was. And then kind of go and do likewise. and and. The Bible talks about that. We, in our teaching team, had some great conversations. I think the, the the people, the characters in Daniel, take these stands that were at great risk, um, and I think they did that out of a, an allegiance to not wanting to dishonor their God. But we've talked about Mordecai and Esther and the very, like we talk about a post-Christian America. They were a post Jewish Israel yeah. that were living in captivity and found it to be home. So, and we have no record that he doesn't bow to the king. Yeah, We have there, nothing that says that. He might know. have been a good saluter in all kinds of other areas, but we really kind of dug in and felt like primarily this reason not to bow is I'm not going to bow to that guy who's a descendant from the Amalekites 
who were just horrible to my people as we were leaving slavery from Egypt. Mm. And we thought that it was more like centuries old, just this sense of seething that really was what brought it. And at the end of the day, on both ends, there's some racism that's found there, a hatred of another ethnicity, and that was really probably the conflict more than anything. Mm. And that's even in some ways, I think what you pointed out so well in the message, it's not only what motivates Mordecai's refusal to bow, but it also motivates Haman's extreme over-the-top response of not let's kill Mordecai, let's kill everybody. Let's kill, them all. let's kill every Jew, right? Like that's an insane leap from this to like that logical leap is wild, but it's fueled by there's something deeper going on there. Yeah. And so then I think when we get into that topic, Maybe for some people, they've been just rolling around, uh, along their life as a Christian, and they've never even really come across this reality. We're talking about genocide happening in the Old Testament, and they're saying, what? Like, I had no idea. Mm. Um, and all of a sudden, that's kind of feeling a little disconcerting. Or there's other people like, yeah, man, I knew about this, and I still don't know what to make of it. Mm. Um, let's just kind of start with the broad tension points that we have. We understand that an attribute of God being something that will never change, will always be true and constant because it's so, that's the beautiful reality of God not changing. It gives us such consistency. Um, he's always going to be good. That's an attribute that we um, see all throughout scripture. We see it affirmed continuously. Um, he's always going to be good. God also uses his people to wipe out other people. How do we reconcile those two, how do we even connect those two tension points that God is good all the time and he also uses his people to wipe out other people? Yeah. And I think this is where I, that first collided for me in a real kind of aha moment. Um, I was in a seminary class, I'm a college graduate, and it's in the Minor Prophets. And there's a whole lot there that has amazing transference and application to our worlds today. I didn't think it did. But what was interesting about this particular, I can't remember which of the prophets it was talking about, but basically, let's even take it another step further, that this was in relation to Israel being judged. And I think that's a key word that we want to use throughout our conversation today. Wipe out, but wipe out why. Uh, totally, completely destroy why in judgment. Mm -hmm. There's a judging concept there. And uh, so in this particular minor prophet, it's the prophet crying out to God, God, why are you judging us this way? And what he's kind of making the connect is, you're using a nation even worse than us to judge us. So then mm. we think about the justice of God. If you're going to use a hammer, at least use a righteous hammer, you know, to yeah. judge people, not this incredibly horrible group of people to judge us who don't seem as horrible, mm. right? And I just remember being in class, raising my hand, and, and I remember my professor being a tad dismissive, but what he talked about, though, was true, and he talked about tension. And I think this whole topic we look at today is filled with tensions that we have to try to put together. The tension of this topic, like you said, for some, even becoming aware of it for the first time this weekend is like, wait, what? Yeah. For others, the tension has actually led them into great kind of, I would say, just kind of uh, tributaries of despair or confusion or just even walking away from faith. And it might not be, that might not be true for you watching today, but you have people in your relational world, maybe family members, maybe friends who have walked away from their faith, deconstructed their faith. And this has been a major part of that whole 
mm. issue. And so what we're talking about is huge. This is really important stuff. And so if we go back to why would God do this? Like there's in a weird way, right? We go back to Genesis, God, and we'll keep using that word judges, God judges Sodom and Gomorrah for the incredible sense. It's almost like a, a lost people. There's, there's not hope for what's mm. gonna happen. I remember even in our teaching team, uh, Brian brought it all the way back to the flood. That's really the first of these things. But think about the judgment of the flood is raining down water, Sodom and Gomorrah raining down fire and brimstone, those are two mechanisms that God uses to judge sin. And, and can I do this? Can I take it even further back? What are we talking about? We have to go back all the way to Genesis 3. We have to be reminded that the human race chose to defy God in our first ancestors in the garden. And as a result, we all deserve judgment. And I think what we become in our, even in a Christian context, we can drift to become very man-centric, human-centric, and in thinking that that is the essence, the most important thing is that people thrive. I don't think God thinks that. I think what God says is most important is that his character and that his ways are honored and that they are uh, demonstrated consistently. One of God's incredible traits that we are so grateful for his goodness, we're also grateful for his justice. Mm. And so we cannot take, start taking them apart and saying we like the good God, not the just God. Yeah. And so the justice of God is going to be metered out. It, it's going to be engaged. And so while we, we kind of are on the one hand, blown away by a flood and by destroying a city with fire and brimstone, it's a little bit different when God uses people to judge other people. Mm. And that's where I think a little bit of the disconnect is, because let's be real, what's going on in our world today, this smells a little bit like what Russia's doing with Ukraine. And like, what is this naked aggression just crossing into Western borders and saying, we want this back? and we're taking human lives, we're destroying cities. A watching world is watching this going, what on earth, how in the world could someone just be motivated to go, I'm just gonna go take a country that's neighboring mine. And we don't even have a category for this in our lifetimes, many of us. Yeah. So we're processing and then we come to God's word and we go, wait, God does stuff like that? And I think all the more it creates a sense of not just confusion, but maybe a sense of despair. Mm. I don't I don't have categories for these things and I'm getting concerned. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of um, Romans 1, even this process that we see happen all throughout the Old Testament where um, it almost, you know, one of the great pictures that I was given for Romans 1 is it's almost as if a, a boat is, humanity's on this boat that's kind of heading down the stream that goes off of a cliff down a waterfall and God knows like that's it, right? Like that's where it's done. And so it's almost as if all throughout the Old Testament, we see God almost insert his hand into the river, block the boat and say like, don't go further. Ooh. 
and then humanity pushes past and says, no, we want to go further. And he removes it. And it says in Romans that he gave them over to, right? And so it's almost yeah, like wow. one step closer to total destruction, total loss. And so God just continues to give humanity over to. And I think it's those judgments. That's where he's inserting his hand mm. that we see throughout the Old Testament. And by way of warning to others. Yeah. Right? I mean, that, that, let's go back to your, your original question was using the people of Israel in the book of Joshua to to hand oh, this idea deliver over to God was another way of completely annihilate. That's what was powerful about the Esther 3 passage. That's what Haman gets decreed into law, that the Jewish people are gonna be completely annihilated and destroyed and their goods taken um, uh, for plunder. That's what happened in the promised land, yeah. is that people were destroyed and often their cities were not leveled, but people, what did um, Moses say in Deuteronomy? You're gonna live in homes you didn't build. You're gonna have the fruit of vines you never planted. Mm. So they're literally gonna come in and take up residence in these homes that were these other people's. And that just sounds horrific to us, so unfair. But one of the things that we forget as we read in Deuteronomy leading up, it's painting the, the pathway into the book of Joshua, is what is consistently said, God has been patient with the people of Canaan who have so completely walked away from him. They have entire civilizations based on disobedience to God. They were doing horrible things to other nations and to themselves, including the killing of their own children to sacrifice certain gods. And so this level of unrighteousness has been building literally for hundreds of years. And he had said it even back in Genesis, I'm going to use a people to come and judge this unrighteous group of people. Mm. And so number one, God forecasted it. God told us, it's not that God didn't know what he was gonna do, but he even let us know before it happened when the time of their unrighteousness had now reached a limit, he had his people in slavery for 400 years, not just so that they could grow in number, but so that this unrighteousness could boil past the point. There would be opportunity after opportunity to repent, the people didn't. So now God's gonna use his people, this new nation of Israel, to exact justice and to benefit from, at the end of the day, and live in a land that they never worked to develop. Yeah. And so that that's a little bit more of that backstory of what was going on. God's using his people to be the hand of his justice in others' lives. That's very different from Haman decreeing into law, I want to kill a group of people because of what they did to my ancestors. That's revenge. That's vengeance. That's not justice. Mm. That's exacting something that I want and I have the ability, I'm in a place of leadership where now I can make it happen. Yeah. And one of the things that I did, I love that you're going back to Deuteronomy and Joshua because that's really where this all starts. Even though this beef that between Haman and Mordecai, that's a that's a Saul and Amalekites beef. Oh, and even further but, back into Exodus. Yeah. Because that's when that really yeah, the that's initial when that starts. Happened. Yeah. But um, 
one of the things that I did to start the year this year is I, I went through, uh, I read the Bible in 30 days. And what was helpful was seeing some of the meta narrative that's going throughout scripture. And one of the things that was so powerful to me about the connection, reading Deuteronomy in a day and then Joshua in a day, which was still one of the dumbest things that I've done, I feel like. <laughs> but what was helpful about it was Deuteronomy, you see this theme of don't allow any evil in your midst. Mm -hmm. That comes up over and over and over Be again. Be holy. Don't allow any evil in your midst. And it's this like, if you allow, it's that whole great image, you know, that we've seen all through church uh, in recent years of, you know, the pastor gets up on the chair and says, it's so much easier to pull me down off of this chair than it is for me to pull you up. Yep. And that's the instruction to Israel is don't be influenced by other nations, even if there's unrighteousness within you eliminate the evil in your midst. And um, then Joshua is the opportunity to put that into practice. And what struck me was going to the end of Joshua and seeing that Israel didn't finish the mission. They left fringe evil on their life because they thought, surely we've got enough. Surely we've built out enough. We've got enough room for us and our families. And they allowed fringe evil to live on the midst of their lives. And just as Moses had forewarned them, that evil overtook them. That's and that's why they're ultimately exiled. Yeah. And so this was about more than just God saying, I don't like those people, but I'm setting up my unique, holy, righteous people. And God's holiness defines the terms of the relationship. And if you are going to be my unique people and represent me to the world, then you will be holy as I am holy, which means you have to eliminate the evil that will ultimately corrupt you in your midst. And I just thought, what a great parallel even for our own lives. Mm -hmm. I don't like rampant sin in my life, but I am so okay with fringe sin. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm so okay with the stuff that lives on the edges of my life because it's not going to take me over. I can, I can manage that. It's not that bad. I've got a good enough life. Man, Jesus came that we would have life and have it to the full, not to, you know, have this like fringe stuff living in our life. And totally. so I think, man, that is a powerful reality that we see happening in Joshua. There's more on display than just God's grudge against nations. Totally. And maybe another takeaway, like you were just mentioning, you know, what's true of the people of Israel when they went into the land was mostly obedience, mm. not full obedience. What was the problem with Saul? What, what Saul could say, he said to Samuel in, in 1 Samuel 15, I did what you, what you told me to do. I wiped out the people. I got rid of the animals and the livestock. Mostly, he left a king as a trophy, and he left the best of the livestock and didn't give them over to the Lord like he was told to. So it's again, it's that mostly obedience. And, and what is the what you said happens to the nation of Israel? This is their recipe for disaster for later on is the influence of neighboring nations that they did not destroy. And for Saul, you're no longer got, you no longer have my uh, seal of approval, Saul. I'm handing your kingdom over to someone else. He lost it in a day. Yeah because he didn't fully obey. So there's something about that full obedience and not just partial. That is another good takeaway it's for significant. us as well. Yeah, no, it's good. So give me this. If I'm struggling with this tension and I feel maybe even frustrated towards God, some of those things that we've talked about, or I've got people in my life that are in that spot, is that okay? Or am I in a spot like that I can't come back from? Am I in a spot that I'm maybe even my heart's in maybe the wrong spot or I'm looking over some things? Like, is it appropriate for us as Christians, uh, obviously maybe not to live there in that frustration or that feeling of like, that can't be right. 
but is it okay that I'm there right now? And maybe the best way I can answer that, I, I don't know as our people are listening and thinking about their own lives or people they know, I could see a myriad of, of attitude, heart attitudes that people could have, but let me at least give you two. I think the big picture is it's always appropriate to say, God, I don't understand this. God, it's confusing. And God, I'm I'm hurt by this. It's not just I'm confused intellectually, but this has weight to it that affects my life. Whether that's an experience that happens in your life, a trial that comes into your life, or just theological truth that's hard to put into a framework that makes sense. So to have confusion, always appropriate. I love this, um, one of the books I remember reading years ago, just there's a great line in it. The opposite of faith is uh, is not doubt, but sight. Mm. So the idea is, I think sometimes we're hard on ourselves and hard on others if they would even dare question that what they, they see in scripture, because it's by questioning that we often come to a truth that we'll own and not just kind of what you know you told me in two minutes yeah and it's like i need and if that moves me like we said this weekend if my confusion moves me towards god because i don't think there's any good answer apart from him if it moves me toward him the outcome of that search can be incredibly powerful it's going to be faith and it will and it will strengthen my faith and it's a, a faith that's informed yeah right god never says have a faith that um, is completely without any understanding or a faith that's without any substance and just believe. Yeah, It's like, mm, that's why he's given us his word so we can know him in his ways. There's another though, I think, potential motivation at this issue of just how does God sanction the justice and judgment of people by using other people and I think sometimes it's people already walking down a road of wanting to step away from faith. Mm, and just looking in for a, a reason. Sense, they're looking for the ammo. What are things I can add to that? And and I have people in my life I'm thinking of right now that I'm gonna I'm gonna say this as a qualifier. I haven't had the sit down and said what's going on. But from things that I perceive, knowing them, knowing their posts on social media, knowing conversations they're having with other people, it seems like I wanted to walk away from my faith and I didn't know a good way to do that. And I began just kind of identifying them. And again, who was I influenced by? I probably didn't just sit down one day and say, I wanna walk away from my faith, but it was, I'm beginning to lean usually more that begins with habits and behaviors that then say, this is inconsistent that from what I know, what do I do with that inconsistency? And then it's usually looking for some other things that feed those inconsistencies to then feel okay to walk away. Mm. And that's where I just go, I don't know that there's a one size fits all answer related to if I'm confused by this, because I think some of us are genuinely confused and the encouragement go to the scriptures and keep finding answers. Yeah. For those who honestly are not confused, but looking for another piece to add to that puzzle of why I feel good about walking away from Jesus, from his church, then I don't know that it's really about confusion. Yeah. I think it's just adding another piece to that, that arsenal. Yeah, it's all about what's motivating you, right? I'm a, I'm a real big fan of, I think we um, get a little too down on either as a, a, in church world, we get too down on people who are doubting, like don't ask questions or we get down on ourselves when we doubt. 
I'm a real big fan that it seems pretty consistent to me that doubt brings faith when you doubt seeking the truth, yeah. right? If your doubt is pointing you towards, I want to find truth, then you're going to find God because God is truth, right? Yeah. And so that's going to lead you in the right direction to say, I'm doubting this, not because I just flat don't want to believe it. I'm doubting this because I just, I want to know what's true. Yeah. And so it's going to cause me to dig a little deeper and find what's true. And as that happens, you know, you just think of all these great examples of somebody being like, I don't know, God. And then those people becoming the very people that he uses. Yeah. Like you think about Thomas and who he becomes, doubting Thomas, as he becomes this great missionary to Asia and he dies a martyr's death. Like that guy, when we see him in the room with Jesus, that was not that guy. Yeah. But w the moment that he's confronted with the truth and he places his faith truly in Jesus, that launches him to become a whole different person. You think of timid Gideon, right? Who's like laying out the fleece a couple of times, you know, like, I don't know, I don't know. But he's seeking the truth. And at a certain point, he just can't deny it. Yeah. And so I think, man, if that's where your doubt's headed, that's beautiful. Like you're going you're gonna to see your faith grow yeah. if your doubt's pointing you towards truth. If your doubt's pointing you towards judgment, or almost like, I think that's the root of sin, is when we sit in the judge's seat and we evaluate, is God who he says he is? Is he good enough? Is, are, are his ways good for me? I think that's the root of sin is to say, I have any right to judge God or what he's told me to do or not do. Yeah. And it's that, it's that removing God from the throne of our hearts and placing ourselves there. Mm. And I think, man, if that's where you're already at, then you have more stuff to work on at the heart level before you get to the questions because God needs to sit on the throne of your heart first. Yeah. And that's a move of faith to say, God, I'm placing you in authority over my life. I don't have all of this figured out yet, but we're going to get there because I know that you're good. And so I'm going to place you on the throne of my life and then I'm going to go chase after truth. But man, if you're just looking to judge God, I think you're, you're not headed towards a place that's going to build faith. Same book that you, I love what you just said, same book that you referenced earlier, Romans 1, Romans 9, talks about God's ability, his rightful place to be in charge, mm. to be sovereign, to direct ways. So listen, this was Paul anticipating exactly what you just said. Romans 9 verse 14, what shall we say then? Is God unjust? Mm. Do we get to call God unjust? He says, not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. The whole essence of Pharaoh's leadership and authority was so that God could be on display. Mm. Just think about that for a minute. When was the last time we thought about anybody through that lens where we would go, oh, look at what they did in that season of leadership and authority, or oh, look at the, the choices that they made and the battles that they won. Well, what if this is true for every single person on the planet? I put you in this role so that my name would be proclaimed mm. in all the earth. And look at what he goes on to say. One of you will say to me, then God, then why does God still blame us? Like what fault of ours, if God's gonna get done what he's gonna do, yeah. what part do I have to play and how am I somehow in, in, involved in being judged because I'm just simply doing what he wants anyways. 
It says, for who resists his will? But then this great line, but who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Mm. This is that question of who's sitting in the judge seat and he uses a great illustration. Shall what is formed say to who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does, the, does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? Mm. If God's the potter shaping the clay, who are we as his products, as his works of, of that shaping to look back at him and go, what'd you do? Yeah. Why would you have put me? We're forgetting who's in charge. We're forgetting who is the authority to create those designs. And again, not for what looks like is always my best advantage. Um, how does this benefit me the most? I don't think God's asking that question. He's asking the question, how does this person's life and all that they go through better allow my name to be proclaimed in yeah. the world? And I just feel like that last point you said is so important. We put God on the stand and we begin to judge him as good, evil, as right, wrong. And we've forgotten who, what place we have and we're on the stand. Yeah. And interestingly enough, because of our sin, God has said, and you're all judged as it's already done. As sinful. Yeah. You're all judged as those who lived apart from my design. But like you just said, and I loved how Kurt brought this up in teaching team. And in that judgment, though, God makes a way for atonement, for forgiveness through the cross of his own son. Mm. So God rightly, and I love this early in Romans 3, God rightly judges sin, but he judges it on his own son. Mm. That's just... That's so powerful. Yeah, yeah, we're real fine with the judgment on Jesus, but we're not that we're not that cool with judgment when it actually takes place as it's supposed to on us. On us, we're saying, "Wait, what's going on? That's not cool." Because to us, God is should be, I think, for whatever reason, all about human flourishing. God is about bringing glory to His name, and God does that through human flourishing. But that is not the exclusive way that God does that. And if and human flourishing will not come at the expense of God's glory. Yeah. And so his holiness sets the terms. We have to let that we have to let that ring true in our life and in our doubt and it is so okay to have questions. But man, the moment we lose perspective and we forget who we are in relation to him. Um, so let's like let's land here. What if I'm struggling with this? If somebody in my life is struggling with this, what's kind of a synthesized thing that I can take away from this? difficult conversation and say, man, I can't give you all the answers, but this is at least how I see what God's up to there in this difficult moment in the Old Testament when we see God judging these people groups. This is what this is what he's up to. And it might not explain everything, but it might it might bring some clarity. Yeah. The best way I know how to say it in a succinct way is that because all humanity has sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. We're all under the judgment of God, rightly so. And the fact that he doesn't and hasn't exacted justice for what we deserve is all mercy in the middle of it. And yet when God, when there are times when he says, I am now, the, the point of their sin, the point of their 
um, denial of who I am has reached a point. See the patience in that, right? And, and it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. He's patient with us. But when that patience gets exhausted on an individual or a people, judgment comes. And remember what we're talking about, this is all aside from the cross, meaning this is this idea that we're talking about people who are not in Christ. Mm. And as a result, his judgment comes and he chooses lots of ways to judge sin. Sometimes miraculously, I don't mean that in air quotes like it's not a miracle, but not in normal ways we'd experience like the flooding of the planet or in hail, hail and fire and brimstone. But other times he judges sin through the mechanism of using other people to judge another people. Mm. And um, I don't think that is always the case for war and what happens in that, but it is sometimes. And his word is clear, at least in the historical record, when that those were those came out of that motivation. Yeah, that might even fall under that providential category mm. that we've talked about before. And, and I think Israel is a great example of this because we see Israel be the judge, like God's tool, but then we also see Israel get judged. Be judged. And we mm. see the process that happens from when they're used as judge and when they are judged. Um, there is so many opportunities to turn back. It's all repent, repent, repent. You think about what all the prophets are saying to all the corrupt kings, repent and turn back for there's destruction ahead. And there are all these opportunities for the people to turn back and they do for short periods and then they just get worse. Yeah. And it's look, repent, look repent, the repent. Book of, the book of Judges follows the book of Joshua. Yeah. And what is that downward spiral that keeps just happening? Just gets worse. And then I think Jeremiah sets this beautiful stage for you're going into exile, you're being judged, not because I'm done with you, but so that I might redeem you. Because it's actually at a certain point, the threshold isn't God saying, that's it, I can't stand anymore. His patience is is ongoing. That's not his issue. He's not reached this point of rage that now he's acting out of some unrighteous anger. But it's you have gone to a point that unless you are judged, unless you are brought back low, you can't come back from. And so for your sake, I am judging you so that you might be redeemed. And so we have to remember his judgment is for the ultimate purpose of redemption. Amen. It's for the ultimate purpose of bringing people to know Jesus. So hopefully this has been a helpful conversation for you, a long one, but a helpful one, hopefully navigating some difficult questions uh, that we see throughout the Old Testament. We hope it's an encouragement to you. If you've got further questions or some tangible takeaways from the message this weekend, we'd love to know. Leave them there in the comments. Don't forget to like the video, uh, subscribe for future videos as well. But that's all we got for this week. We'll catch you guys next week on Tangible Takeaways. Thank you.